Please open your Bibles this evening to Luke chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. I hope you have had a good day. I have had an incredible day. I have eaten and eaten and eaten, and I have gotten to visit with dear friends from the past and to make other good friends of, uh, of the congregation here that uh, were not friends before, and it's great to be with you. I love your theme, the God who is more. And tonight, I love this, this topic of the God who loves more. Something that is so critically important in our world today, in a world that seems to just be angry and upset, and where people are written off so quickly, and where there just seems to be uh, just a, an epidemic of treating people badly. How wonderful to be with the people of God, gathered around the Word of God, and remembering the God who loves more. And I believe that the text this evening is going to be one that is going to challenge all of us to follow our God in loving more. Our text tonight is going to be the story of the Good Samaritan. And I want to begin simply by reading the text. Beginning in verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. It's a story that many people associate with their days in Sunday school. It's a story that today in American culture, a lot of Americans know the story and don't even know that it comes from the Bible itself. What is it about the story of the Good Samaritan that makes it so incredibly compelling? I think for one thing, it's that we find ourselves somewhere in that story. I think for some of us, maybe for all of us, at some time or other, we have been that man who was on the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We have felt beaten up by life. We have cried out, somebody, please help me. And we have been desperate for somebody to come to our aid. The city of Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet in elevation. Jericho, where he is headed, is going to be 700 feet below sea level. 
And so it is a pretty precipitous drop. And it's only 17 miles east-northeast of Jerusalem. If you were a Jew and your, your orientation of the world were Jewish, then you would think of Jerusalem as being the high point and any direction you go from Jerusalem, you are going down. Because physically, you are going down. This man is, is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's through a desolate wilderness area. Even to this day, it's a desolate area. And you feel exposed and, and, and separated from people and just sort of, sort of out of touch when you're there. And as he is going down, he falls among robbers. They rob him, they beat him, they strip him, and they leave him for dead. All of us have felt what it's like to be the beaten up person who is crying out for help. I think all of us have probably been the priest and the Levite. They've both been to Jerusalem, and they've both been involved in the temple worship there, and they're on their way going home as well. And as they come by and they see this man who has been stripped of his clothes, and he's beaten up, and he's maybe dying or dead, they pass by on the other side of the road. I think any time that you and I have been presented with an opportunity to help someone, and for whatever reason, maybe we were too busy, or maybe we were afraid, or maybe we just were uncertain, but for whatever reason we have passed by on the other side of the road, I think every one of us knows what that feeling is, and we know that we don't want to feel that again. And then I think that every one of us here tonight can identify with the story and the good Samaritan. And any time in life where we've been presented with an opportunity to help someone and we went out of our way, maybe inconvenienced ourselves, maybe spent some of our own money, but we did something to help somebody that really couldn't help us, do we ever feel closer to God than at moments like that? when we are the Good Samaritan. I think everybody here identify, I think we see ourselves in this story. Or it may be like the, the little granddaughter of a very dear friend of mine back in Searcy, Arkansas. He's a grandfather and on Sundays the family will get together at, at their house and around their table and he'll talk to his grandchildren about, about what they learned in church that day. He had a little preschool granddaughter and one day he said, well, what did you learn about in, in Sunday school today? And she said, we talked about the man who got hurt. And he knew that they were studying about the Good Samaritan. And he says to his granddaughter, and who was the hero in that story? And he said that without missing a beat, with wide eyes, she looked at him and said, the donkey. Well, sometimes maybe there's even a place for us to want to be the donkey that helps someone who is in a bad, bad way. But we identify with this story because we see ourselves in it so readily. In looking at the story of the Good Samaritan, I think it's important as a preacher, I'll tell you a little inside of, of the things preachers wrestle with, Fred Craddock, a great writer in the field of preaching, has said that there's a great temptation for preachers to boil off all the water 
and to preach the stain at the bottom of the cup. And that one lives with me. The idea that, that we, we go to our study during the week and then we come before the church and we say, okay, I have boiled off all the water, three points from the Good Samaritan, this, this, and this. And the idea is that we don't want to reduce this story to three simple points. As a matter of fact, this is something that we may never get our arms completely around. The story is simple in some ways, and yet every time we read it, I think we see something different. I think it's sort of like a diamond, that every time you turn it in the light, you see different colors, you see different flashes of light. And if you look at it a thousand times, you're going to see something a little different a thousand times. I think that's the story of the Good Samaritan. The man who comes and sets this whole thing up is a lawyer. Verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? I think it's very clear from the text that this man who comes to Jesus asking a question is not a humble good-hearted God-seeker. The text says in verse 25, first of all, he comes to Jesus to test him. He wants to ask him a question to trip him up, to nail him to the wall in some way. And then in verse 29, after Jesus has said, you've answered correctly on these great commandments, he said, but desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then at the very end of the story, when Jesus says, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and he says, which one showed him mercy? Or he said, which one of these was proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And it seems in the story that this man could not even bring himself to say the word the Samaritan. And instead, he just sort of gets around it by saying, the one who showed him mercy. I don't think this is a good heart that we're looking at. I think it's someone who wanted to trick Jesus. I believe it's a man who wanted to justify himself. You see, his question is one where he's been told that he's, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's, that's a pretty tall order. So, so how do I make that manageable? And who is my neighbor? Jesus, Jesus all the way through the Gospels would oftentimes have people coming to him asking the wrong question. And Jesus knew full well that the right answer to the wrong question will still leave you in the wrong place. The right answer to the wrong question will leave us in the wrong place. And so Jesus had this maddening habit in the Gospels of answering the right question. 
It wasn't what people oftentimes ask. Because Jesus knew that the right answer to the wrong question is going to leave him in the wrong place. And so he would answer the right question. The man who comes to test Jesus, what he's wanting to do, who is my neighbor? <clears throat> Jesus, will you sort of narrow the field? Will you tell me who is and who is not my neighbor? Slice this category down a little bit, make it a little more manageable for me. It's been said that this man be being a lawyer, maybe he wanted Jesus to answer it something like this. The man, which who, who after this will be called the party of the first part, is to be construed as a Jewish individual who lives within three statute miles of the person who is the non-Jew, the party of the second part. And, and this person lives closer to this person than the party of the third part, and then in which case the party of the third part is obligated to be a neighbor to them, but you are not. I don't know if that's what he's looking for or not, but I think that's the spirit of it. It's that you, in some way, narrow this thing down so that I don't have to take care of the man who's beaten and robbed on the way down from Jerusalem going to Jericho, but instead you, you narrow this for me, Jesus, in some way. It's been said that in, the, in this story, Jesus does not define who is your neighbor. But what Jesus does is he calls us to be a neighbor. That's a big difference. One says that I'll let you off the hook in, in a difficult situation. The other one says that I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to define neighbor here, but I'm asking the question. And the story causes us to ask the question, am I a good Samaritan? Am I a good neighbor? In the story, there's, there's something that, that happens in it that I, I just wonder if we can ever possibly recreate. Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish audience. And he, he tells about the man, and they would have assumed he was Jewish, and he's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he gets beat up and left for dead. There's a priest who's Jewish, crosses by on the other side of the road and goes on. There, there is a, a Levite who crosses by on the other side, a Jew, and crosses by on the other side of the road. And as Jesus tells the story, he says, but, in verse 33, but a Samaritan. And I think, is there any way, is there any way for those of us who have heard this story our whole lives, is there any way for us to feel what those people felt when Jesus said, but a Samaritan? Because I believe when Jesus said that, it was like slapping someone in the face. I think it was a jolt. I think if we could reproduce it here in the congregation this evening, it would be like my saying something and you heard the whole congregation go, oh, I think that's what that moment was like. I had a good Samaritan experience in my life a few years back. I had been up in Washington, D.C. in the first part of the year. I always had some, some conferences to attend there. And I was up in D.C., and one of the uh, 
programs that we had is we got to hear from the people at Emory University Hospital. It was their PR folks, public relations folks. And they were talking about Kent Brantley, the Ebola doctor who had uh, contracted Ebola over in Liberia as he'd gone there as a missionary doctor and he was brought back to Emory University Hospital. And when he was brought back here, there was a national news storm. National media was just all over this thing. And social media was completely brutal. And the people at Emory, on the PR uh, team, they said for two weeks it was just a bloodbath for them. That they were being criticized from every direction. And people were saying horrible things, like he's a missionary, he decided to go over there, he deserves to die, what are you doing? And people didn't understand that what Emory does here and what is done in about five or six other hospitals around the country is have full dress rehearsals for events just like that, for reasons that are, well, they're generous and benevolent, but they're also selfish for us because... Germs in one part of the world are going to be everywhere else in the world in very, very short order. Well, they were telling about how that for two weeks, they, they just couldn't catch a break. And all they could do was, was simply to put out good news, you know, the, the accurate information. You can believe it if you want to or not, but accurate information, and hopefully it will take hold. And as they talked to us in Washington, D.C. at that conference, they said that after about two weeks, their better, our better, better angels appeared. And the thing started to turn, and people started to understand what had happened. It was within a month of that that Kent Brantley spoke on the stage of the, the Benson Auditorium and at Harding University as a part of our American Studies program. And he basically walked us through the experience. He had gone to Liberia with an organization called Samaritan's Purse because there was an outbreak of Ebola and it needed to be, it needed to be managed and, and it, they needed to get a handle on this thing before it broke loose and went all over Africa and all over the world. And so he went over there with his wife and children and was, was working in a, in a missionary hospital there in Liberia. And he said he thinks he knows where he got Ebola. The hospital had, had two wings or two sections of it. And one of them was, was just for Ebola patients. Sounds a lot like COVID. But one wing was just for Ebola patients, and the other one was the general hospital area. He said the night before he had been in the general hospital, not the Ebola section, but he had been in the general population, working all night long with other physicians and nurses trying to save the lives of two young mothers who were delivering children. And at the end of that grueling night, both mothers died and both of the children. And he is convinced that somehow during that night, he contracted Ebola. When it hit him, he said, I can't even begin to describe what it was like and how quickly all energy went away. And he talked about how that within just a very short time, the nurses in the hospital that had been working with him were having to diaper him because he was so completely helpless. And he described how when he could barely lift his, his hand that they brought him a telephone and he called his parents 
and he called his siblings to say goodbye. It wasn't a, you know, I'll I'll be back in touch and keep you posted. This was the last phone call because there was just almost no hope. And he said that during those earliest days, he said he took blood transfusions for three days. The first day, it was from the blood bank there at the hospital. And the second day, it was from a co-worker at the hospital that gave blood directly to him. On the third day, there was a 14-year-old boy. He came with his family, and his family wanted him to donate blood to Dr. Brantley, who had come to Liberia to help the Liberian people in this Ebola plague. And and he wanted wanted to give blood because he had had Ebola. And remarkably and inexplicably, he had recovered from it. And so they didn't know if there were antibodies there that would help or not. Nobody really knew, but he wanted to give the blood. And so he took a transfusion from a 14-year-old boy. And then Dr. Brantley said, and he was a Muslim. That was my Good Samaritan moment. I was sitting there in an auditorium with a couple of thousand people. And I felt that all of us at one time went, because that's not what we were expecting. I think that kind of shock and that kind of category is exactly what happened when Jesus first told this parable and said, this man is beaten up, he's left for dead. And the person that came along and helped him was a... Samaritan. Several years ago, my wife and I, it was in 2005 when I was making the transition from the college church in Searcy to over across the street to work for Harding University. And, and my wife and I were teachers at Harding's program in Athens, Greece. So students and some teachers will go over for a semester and take college courses, get a full load of of college credits, and also get to travel the world. And so we were in Athens, and my wife was teaching a PE class, and she's a nurse by training, and she was also teaching what's called EdFed, and an education on the College of Education, its foundations of education. And I was her first student. Every night before her lecture the next day, I would get her lecture. I still think Harding University owes me three hours of credit for Ed Fed because I took the course and I could pass the test. But I was, I was just fascinated by what I was learning as she was getting ready to teach educational foundations to the students. And one of the things one night that she was talking about was how that, that good teachers give students folders for their brains. The idea is that when you teach a student something, you teach it well, you give them a folder maybe for the rest of their life that they can put things into. Maybe you teach them about subject-verb agreement. And when you do that, they've got a folder. And every time they hear subject and verb together and they, they hear one that sounds right or doesn't sound right, they have a folder to put it in. So it doesn't fall on the ground and they they grow. And we grow as time goes on and we fill up those folders. 
And the idea is that when you give a student a, a folder, they're going to be changed for the rest of their lives. And it struck me as I was, as I was studying the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, that that's what Jesus is doing in that story. And it's what Jesus has done all the way through the Gospel of Luke. I'd ask you to take your Bibles right now, and let's just, let's just look quickly at some stories in Luke. Luke chapter 1. Mary, the mother of Jesus. As we go about looking for faith and goodness and virtue in the strangest of places, as Jesus gives us a folder for you might want to think about looking at this kind of person and seeing that they ought not be written off and that there may be virtue there that you've been blinded to before. I think the essence of bigotry and racism is that we don't have enough folders and that we don't have folders for particular groups of people, for good members of that group of people or good things that people in that group of people might do. Jesus does this all the way through the Gospel of Luke. To begin with, there's his mother, Mary, a, an unwed peasant girl. She's about to have this child. She's not married. Are you going to find virtue there anywhere? And in Luke, Mary is lifted up and we're just in awe of her. So when she is when she is told about what is about to happen, she says, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I can't think of anything closer to the heart of God. I can't think of, of a better description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus than let it be to me according to the word of God. Whatever God wants, Whatever God calls me to, that's exactly what I want to do in my life. So there's a folder for somebody like Mary. Over in chapter 5, there is the calling of Levi, starting with verse 27. And after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. For the hearers of Jesus, they didn't have a folder for that. Tax collectors in the first century in the Jewish world were called Jews who have made themselves Gentiles. That they were regarded as just liars to the bone, and their testimony was not even allowed in a Jewish court of law. So that's the way they're looked upon. And in Luke here, we find that Jesus in his interaction with Levi basically says to us, do you, have, do you have a folder for good things that might be done by a tax collector? And they probably said, no, we don't. And in the story of Levi, Jesus hands them such a folder. In chapter 7, there is the story of the centurion. Thinking about Jesus heals this centurion's servant. After he had finished these things in verse 1, 
In the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, you and I read this, and we think centurion, and we know it's an officer. But you stop and you think for just a moment that Jesus is surrounded by people who would view this man as a professional soldier, an officer in an occupation army that was oppressing our people. And there's no way you can like or accept this man or what he's doing. The story as Jesus, as Jesus goes on and goes toward this man's house is the man, the man sends word to Jesus and said, I know being a Gentile and all that you can't come into my house, so just send word and I know my servant will be healed. Because I too am a man under authority and I say to this person, go and they go and another one come and they come. And I think you have that kind of authority in the spiritual world, so just send word and my servant will be healed. And notice what Jesus says in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. He was saying to his hearers, do you have a folder for that? Do you have a folder for good Roman centurions? Or Roman centurions who can do good things and who can show us something of the kingdom of God and open our eyes to something maybe that we, we haven't seen before? Later in chapter 7 there, we find the story of this, this woman who's simply known as a sinful woman. And she has, she has come and she has anointed Jesus at the, the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus says at the end of all of this, he says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Do you have a folder? Do you have a folder for sinful women for something good or something of God or something noble or of something that is shows incredible love and faith and the people would have said no and Jesus in his interaction with this woman who anoints him says well let me give you a folder there is the woman with the issue of blood in chapter 8 someone who is known to everyone is just this is, uh, she is perpetually unclean. And so as he's, as he's going to heal Jairus' daughter, the crowd's all around him, and this woman is thinking to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. And she touches Jesus, and power goes out from him, and he stops. There's a crowd everywhere, and the disciples are even incredulous that he would say, who touched me? Because everybody's touching him. But he wants to... He wants to affirm and lift up this woman in the presence of all the people here. And so she comes trembling. She falls down. She declares in the presence of all the people, verse 47, that she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. To the people there, do you have a folder for how someone who is perpetually unclean 
could show us something about faith? And they would have said no. And Jesus hands them a folder. The ten lepers in Luke chapter 17, when these lepers come to Jesus and he heals them and they, they go to show themselves to the priest. And as they're going, one of them turns around and comes back to Jesus. And you remember what he was? He was a Samaritan. Shocking again. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus wants to know where the other nine are. And he said, you know, they, they didn't come. And Jesus commends him. I've used this story so many times in Thanksgiving sermons. And you expect Jesus to say to him, your heart of gratitude has made you well. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says to this Samaritan, who was a leper who has been healed, he says, your faith has made you well. And Jesus hands them, hands them another folder. Zacchaeus in chapter 19, not only is he a tax collector, but he is the only one in the Gospels that we know of as a chief tax collector. And Luke even in includes a, a nasty little detail about him, and that is he's a chief tax collector and he is rich. And every time those people would have seen the wealth of Zacchaeus, they would have hated him anew because his money came out of their pockets. And Jesus calls him down out of that sycamore tree and he says, I'm going to your house. And he goes and he, and he eats with him. And Zacchaeus stops and he, he, he describes how he's a, a changed man and how he's going to give of what he has to the Lord. Zacchaeus stands up in chapter 19 and verse 8. And he stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him publicly here, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus, I, am, I have absolutely no doubt that he was the single most hated man in Jericho. There can be no good here. And Jesus hands them a folder and says there is good even in the heart of Zacchaeus. A centurion, another centurion, is at the cross of Jesus. And Luke tells us of how this man says of Jesus as he dies, surely this man was innocent. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, sort of the Gospel of Luke, volume 2, and you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So I've got some folders tonight. Some folders that I wonder if, if any of you might need. I think some people might need a folder tonight that says, Good Men. Maybe you've been hurt by men. And you don't know that there are good men. And you may need this folder. Or maybe, maybe you've been betrayed by women. And you need the folder that says, good women. Or what about a folder tonight that says, good Georgia fans. 
Or maybe you need one that says, good Alabama fans. Do you need a folder tonight? Because maybe you don't have one that says, good Democrats. And if you don't need that folder, I'll bet you need the next one that says, good Republicans. Or what about, what about a folder that says, good prisoners? Or a folder that says, good police officers? A folder that says, good immigrants? A folder that says, good rich people? A folder that says, good poor people? A folder that says, good vaccinated people? A folder that says, good unvaccinated people? All of us need some folders that we probably don't have right now. God is doing great things in this world, and there are things that we can learn from people, even if there's a lot about their lives that needs to change, there are things that we can still learn. We live in a world where people are all too quickly, will all too quickly just let other folks fall to the floor. May we be a people, may we be a people who are open to good all around us, wherever it comes from. And I'm not talking about how that anything goes. That's not what this is at all. I'm talking about what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Luke and is handing out folders and finding good and virtue and strength and faith in some of the most unexpected places and among some of the most unexpected people. Tonight we've talked about a good Samaritan and we've talked about folders. What we've really been talking about is God. Jesus is showing us the heart of God. And by what he is describing in the story of the Good Samaritan that would have been so offensive in his time is something that hopefully tonight stirs up our hearts and makes us want to look for good Samaritans. And beyond that, not just look for good Samaritans, calls us to want to be a good Samaritan because that is very near the heart of God. At the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, and which one of these was the neighbor? Well, it's the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. The God who loves more. And may we be like our God. And in this year, may we seek to follow in His steps and to have His eyes and to engage the world with His heart, realizing He's trying to call us, call us to have a heart bigger than we've ever known before. This evening, as we extend the invitation of Jesus, 
we extended in boldness because we know that no one is beyond the love of God. The invitation is for all. He is a wonderful Savior. And this evening, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, to confess Jesus as your Lord, we would love to baptize you before we leave this place tonight. But all of that's predicated on the fact that our God is a God who loves beyond what we can even possibly imagine. This evening, if in any way you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, won't you run into the loving arms of such a God as together